Joe Belezzo here. It is January 1st, 2021. I'm sure we are all happy to see 2020 behind us for so many reasons. So I'll take this moment to welcome you to 2021 with some positive energy and positive ideas. Reboa, resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, has evolved as a tool in the trauma world that is used to gain proximal control of non-compressible torso hemorrhage. It's an option that can be used in lieu of or in combination with open thoracotomy and has gained popularity in the past decade in the trauma world. But what about using Reboa in patients with non-compressible torso hemorrhage not caused by trauma? We discuss this and more in this episode of the ED ECMO podcast. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. I'm joined today by our good friend, Dr. Zaf Kassim. Zaf is an international expert in trauma critical care and a Reboa expert. He did his fellowship in trauma critical care at Maryland Shock Trauma and is an ED and SICU attending at Penn. He's the faculty on multiple Reboa courses and, in fact, is our in house Reboa expert at Reanimate. Zaf's been on the podcast three times, ediacmo.org slash 35, 49, and 59. And Zaf joins me on the podcast today to discuss techniques for management of non-compressible torso hemorrhage not caused by trauma. So, Zaf, welcome back to EDECMO. Great to be here, man. All right. So, today we're going to talk a little bit about balloon occlusion of the aorta, or Reboa, uh, although not in the traditional sense, where we usually think of Reboa in the trauma setting. Um, we're now going to talk about some maybe non-traditional uses of Reboa. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to <clears throat> mention one thing, because Zaf, you're really involved with this stuff. Reanimate. Uh, Reanimate 8 was scheduled for uh, spring of 2020, obviously got uh, postponed by COVID, got repostponed by uh, COVID for the fall version of that, and now we're on hiatus. So uh, keep looking out uh, on reanimateconference.com or ediacmo.org, and we will keep you all updated on when Reanimate 8 is going to occur. It will occur, we just don't know when yet. Zaf? Are you going to join us again? Dude, of course. I uh, was so bummed to see that delayed, but, uh, you know, life is life. So I'm really looking forward to getting back together with the crew. Yeah, it's such a fun, such a fun event. Okay, so Reboa, uh, can you just maybe give us a brief walk through the history of how we got to where we are today, talking about maybe balloon occlusion and how it started and how we got to where we are? Yeah, sure. So, um, we know that uh, hemorrhage contributes to significant uh, or is the, the most important contributor to mortality in trauma. And, you know, we've, we've made great strides in uh, being able to address things like extremity hemorrhage with tourniquets and things like that. But one thing that's always kind of been really difficult to address is what's called non-compressible torso hemorrhage. And that's like bleeding in areas like the abdomen or the pelvis. And uh, both in the civilian and military world, this has been a real challenge. And I think it really came to the forefront in the, um, you know, in the conflicts that uh, the military has been facing over the last uh, uh, decade or so, where a significant proportion of potentially preventable deaths were probably due to torso hemorrhage. And so any innovation that could really help with that um, would be good. Um, And so, you know, this isn't, really a, a new concept. It's kind of an evolution and adaptation of something that's been used elsewhere. And, you know, if you look back, you can see an iteration of this back in the Korean War. Then people played around with it in the 80s. But then really when the vascular surgeons started playing around with this um, and becoming more finessed with endovascular techniques for ruptured AAA was when the uh, military primarily started looking at this for um, uh, non-compressible torso hemorrhage um, and trauma. And so uh, they uh, did a number of studies in the lab with animals and found benefit of um, uh, of using these techniques um, as opposed to what was traditionally being done at the time, which was if someone, you know, exsanguinated from hemorrhage below the diaphragm, one of the options was to open the chest and uh, put a clamp on the aorta. And, you know, they were really just opening the chest just to get to the aorta, not to fix anything in the chest. So at the end of the day, you, you stop the hemorrhage, but now you have two cavities open because inevitably they'll go and open the belly too. Um, and that was physiologically really challenging for the patient. 
But to, um, to, to clarify, we're discriminating that the abdominal hemorrhage from uh, severe thoracic trauma where you might be going in to relieve a pericardial tamponade. Or- yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's, there's traditional indications for uh, thoracotomy, which are still there, like arrest from uh, thoracic injury and tamponade relief and sure. things like that. But here they were just opening the chest just to clamp the aorta. And um, so they were thinking, you know, is there a better way to do this? And that's really how... Reboa got um, uh, introduced and then evolved, and it started um, being trialed in in uh, um, in humans um, at, at really some of the big trauma centers um, around the world. Uh, really through access um, through the common femoral artery and inserting a balloon up into the aorta. And as time has gone by, the the technique and the equipment has become a lot more finessed. Um, so much so that we have smaller catheters now. We have tighter indications about when to do it. And when used in the right system in the right hands, I think we've seen some really good outcomes. So, um, you know, it's certainly uh, 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 still a a moving target in some ways, but certainly has come a long way over the last 10 years. Sure. And looking at the literature on the use of Reboa, and especially a lot of the studies um, in the past decade have compared Reboa to uh, resuscitative thoracotomy, and the studies have been equivocal, maybe some show benefit, some show harm. And there was, I think, one prospective trial from JAMA that showed even possibly a higher mortality rate in the Reboa group compared to the traditional group. Can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so a lot of the initial kind of trials have looked at comparing this to um, thoracotomy uh, and aortic cross-clamping like we talked about. Um, and I think, you know, you have to look at these trials with a degree of caution, I think, because one, this isn't um, a true replacement of thoracotomy. Uh, still, you know, remember the thoracotomy still needs to be done if there's thoracic trauma, but this is really looking to see whether there's an alternative to opening the chest just to put a clamp on the aorta. Um, so a lot of the earlier trials in particular were looking at patients who had either already arrested or were, were um, uh, very close to arresting, so in, in, in significant extremis. Uh, a lot of the studies were challenging to do because there was a small number of places that were doing it and a small number of patients that were receiving it as compared to the usual care that the majority of trauma patients were getting. And um, our understanding of how these patients were managed has evolved really significantly over time. You know, it's, uh, uh, it was very, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's too simplistic to think that we'll just put a Reboa up and that's it and we'll manage the patient the same way. Really, we have to finesse the um, perioperative and postoperative management of these patients in different ways to be able to address their uh, short to medium term outcomes. Um, but I think one of the big takeaways that we've seen, and, and this was really highlighted in, in um, the most recent kind of iteration of um, the AORTA registry, which is one of the bigger uh, prospective registries being run in the United States, was that this seems to benefit the patient most who arrives in significant hemorrhagic shock before they arrest. Um, whereas before we were using this in pretty much anybody, whether they'd arrested or not, but this was this subgroup that had not yet arrested, but would do unless he did something heroic, quote unquote, um, seem to have the best outcomes. And that's really, I think, where our focus now needs to move, that we need to try and uh, get to those patients before they arrest for this to be of greatest benefit. Yeah. So in putting a lid on the trauma side of this, then, can you maybe summarize what would be the current recommendations or the current indications for Reboa in the trauma patient who is peri-arrest? Yeah, sure. So we have to have a, a bleeding source that's amenable. So either uh, abdomen, pelvis, even uh, groin jun- uh, junctional as well. Um, that's uh, Those are areas too high for a tourniquet. Um, and they have to be transient or non-responders to resuscitation. That's really important because, you know, we'll get a lot, a lot of patients who come in who are hypotensive um, and you give them a unit or two of blood and they actually respond. Um, and really, you know, those people don't need a Reboa. Um, the risks of Reboa far outweigh the benefits in that group. But if those patients are resuscitated and they aren't responding or they're only transient responders, those are the patients that 
um, can, might benefit from Reboa. But three, and I think this is one of the most important things, is that not anybody should be putting these in. You really have to have the systems approach to be able to get these people to definitive care because remember, this is just a temporizing tool to stop the hemorrhage briefly um, at the cost of leading to a significant amount of ischemia to a bunch of different organs. And so you have to have that mechanism in place to be able to get these people quickly to definitive um, operative or IR intervention. Exactly. I hate to use the analogy over and over again, but it's not that dissimilar from what ECMO does, which is really yeah. just bridge. It's a bridging device uh, in both situations to take the patient in Roboa case, usually to the operating room or to the IR suite to fix the cause of the hemorrhage. And you're really just buying time to get through that. And you need to have all the resources in place, as you mentioned, the system in place to be able to handle that super high critical care patient and the resources to be able to manage those patients. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, into I wanted to talk briefly before we get into the non-trauma Reboa use uh, is to uh, speak to who can do Reboa, who should be doing Reboa. And as you know, you were involved with committees involved in 2018 over the controversy uh, with the ASEP and American College of Surgery statement regarding who should and who should not be placing Reboa. Can you uh, let us uh, speak to that a little? Yeah, yeah. So this was a, a big argument that came out after a paper in uh, early 2018 that uh, was uh, labeled as a joint statement between ASEP and the American College of Surgeons that said that, um, you know, emergency physicians really shouldn't be doing this. And that was like a, a big slap in the face to a lot of uh, or the emergency medicine world, which are perfectly capable of being able to do this procedure. Um, and, you know, you just have to attend one of our courses to be able to see that there are very capable people who are already doing this and a bunch of other things. Um, so it led to a big backlash. And to their credit, both ASAP and the American College of Surgeons revisited this within 18 months. And we sat together. I was on that uh, second committee where we yeah. sat around a table and kind of discussed, um, you know, who should and shouldn't be doing this. And it boiled down to, and this is now uh, published in um, the uh, trauma surgery, acute care open. Um, but what it boiled down to is uh, just what we were talking about. As long as you're kind of working in a system that has ready access to operative intervention, it doesn't really matter if you're the emergency physician or the intensivist or the surgeon, as long as you have, you've been trained to do it and you can get these people to definitive care quickly, then um, you should be uh, allowed to do it. So uh, that's been the kind of big progression in that area. Um, and uh, certainly a couple of other things that we touched on just to kind of um, uh, understand the process behind uh, use of Reboa, all that's in that paper as well. And I encourage you to read it. Yeah. And certainly we're not saying that Reboa or ECMO or any of these things are core competencies for ER doctors or surgeons or uh, critical care docs or whomever, uh, interventional cardiologists. Um, it's a it's a skill set that you need to train for, learn, and practice. And in the right hands, these are tools that are very valuable. And for those of us who are, I hate to use the word frontliners like they've been using throughout 2020, um, but we really are there when the patient is arresting. And so whether it's uh, a critical care doc or you and me as ER docs, um, you know, as a pa as you know, you've seen patients hemorrhaging in front of you and getting yeah. a, a proximal control and occlusion of the aorta, uh, assuming you have the, the system in place to handle that patient afterwards um, is, is a life-saving event. So uh, agreeing totally. with you, buddy. Yeah. Um, kind of turning the table a little bit where we've talked about uh, Reboa in, in trauma patients. And we've talked a little bit about how that compares to um, open thoracotomy in trauma patients, so gaining proximal control. And then you brought up a concept that I haven't really um, paid too much attention to, which is this whole concept of uh, knee Reboa. Do you want to uh -huh. talk about the compressive, abdominal compressive uh, occlusion of the aorta? Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, something really interesting, but really simplistic. I mean, ultimately, yeah. what are you trying to do? You're trying to get control of the bleeding above that bleeding point, right? And so, you know, the um, the the aorta is right there. And if you uh, if you've ever done like ultrasound of um, like a fast exam or looked at the aorta in particular, you'll see that uh, you know it's easy 
to be able to compress the aorta against the vertebral column, which is right behind it. And so one way to do that would be either to um, directly compress it with your hand or your knee. And there's been scattered reports about this from the pre-hospital literature. There was a recent one uh, that came out of Canada um, where they uh, localized the aorta with ultrasound and somebody put a knee on that patient's belly um, to occlude it and they visualize that on the ultrasound to be able to essentially do what Rabo is doing um, uh, just uh, externally. And so if you're, you know, if you're out in the field, for example, and you come across someone who's bleeding and you don't have that equipment, maybe that's just a temporizing thing to do while, uh, um, while you wait for more skilled uh, techniques or uh, help to come. And so certainly don't throw that out the window. It's uh, all kind of aimed at doing the same thing, but just in a different way. Sure. Okay. On to the crux of this podcast. Uh, we're now talking about non-compressible thoracic or torso hemorrhage, I should say, non-compressible torso hemorrhage. We were talking about in trauma patients, but now what about using this technique in non-trauma patients? And I've had several of these cases over the years, um, but to highlight the case, I want to discuss one case that happened just a month and a half ago at our shop. Uh, and to do so, I'm going to ask our colleague, Dr. Garrett Sterling, who took care of that patient to walk us through the case. Hi, Joe. Thanks for letting me talk about this case. It was a pretty exciting one and one that I'm uh, very uh, happy to have been a part of and one that I'm glad had a good outcome. So the very nice woman that came in, she's 77 years old. She had just had a right-sided uteronephrectomy done two weeks before she came to us. Um, on some outpatient imaging, there was a tumor that was noted to the right ureter. It was unclear exactly what type of tumor it was, if it was malignant or not. But after discussion with her urologist, it was decided that she should get the uteronephrectomy. And so that was done two weeks ago. It was uncomplicated. She'd been at home. Everything was going just fine up until two days before she came to me in the emergency department. She had some bleeding when she went to the bathroom. She wasn't really sure where the blood came from. She thinks it was urine, um, but she's not 100% sure. It could have been vaginal bleeding as well. Um, she got lightheaded. But then it all got better and it went away. And she told her family and they said, look, if you feel fine, whatever, just leave it alone. So that's what she did. But then again, on the day that she came to me, she had another episode just like that. She had uh, some bleeding when she went to the bathroom. She thought it was hematuria, but she wasn't 100% sure. It could have been vaginal bleeding. Uh, she did get pretty lightheaded this time. And this time she actually had a brief syncopal episode, a loss of consciousness during the, during the event. So she called paramedics, family called paramedics. When paramedics got to her at home, her blood pressure was in the 80s systolic, and she was a little bit pale. They gave her a small fluid bolus, some 250, 500 mLs. Uh, everything got better. Her vitals got better. She felt better, and they brought her in. And so that was the report that we were getting. I met her when she came into the emergency department. Initial blood pressures were great. Her vital signs looked normal. We were talking. We were making jokes and laughing. She was actually a pretty funny, pretty funny uh, individual. Uh, and then midway through our initial history, this is probably five minutes into the emergency department visit, she turns to me and she goes, oh, it's happening. Oh, oh, it's happening again. And she just kind of gets this, this look of terror. She becomes noticeably pale in the face. And I lean over, I go, what? I'm sorry, what is happening? And she goes, I'm bleeding again. I'm bleeding. And so at this point, I just lifted up the gown to look to look under her bed sheet, to look to look down at her at her legs, and there is a huge, huge pool of blood that had just shot out of her. I cannot express how shocking the, seeing this much blood was. We're talking easily two liters of blood. It was enough for in the bed that she was sitting in. It had made a pool um, going from her perineal area to her knees and had risen up so that almost her like halfway up her her body was covered in this pool of blood. And then I look at the monitor and she starts to Brady down and she becomes hypotensive. And at this point I think, oh, she's she's definitely gonna code on me right now. Uh, and so I yelled for help. We got all of our gear and equipment and everybody came rushing to the bedside. I quickly put in 
a right-sided cortis line and a right-sided arterial line, and our nurses got arterial pressure tracings up very quickly. Uh, we got two units of uncross-matched blood, which we have available to us in the emergency department, immediately going. So within maybe two or three minutes, we had all this stuff done. And luckily, luckily for her and for, and for everybody, uh, it seemed to be more of a vagal episode with all... Uh, with with what happened almost immediately. And as we're getting the first unit transfused, everything got better. Her blood pressure got better. Her her um, her heart rate came back up. Um, everything kind of perked back up. But at this point, it became very, very clear to everybody in the room, uh, this woman is tenuous and might code at any moment. At any moment, she, she's, she's just looking to code. Um, so we got the two units of blood in. And we're trying to figure out what to do next. So I call her urologist to let to let him know, hey, look, this is what we got. He says, OK, but he's it's going to be a bit before he can actually get to the emergency department. It's not like he's seconds away. So he's notified he's coming in. You know, that's taken care of. But in the meantime, I have this woman who is bleeding to death. And in my mind, I think it needs a surgeon because if she is, if she's going to exsanguinate, somebody has to go in there and, and stop the bleeding. So we are very fortunate to practice with our excellent, excellent trauma surgeon, trauma service immediately nearby. I called our trauma surgeon who was just in the next room. She came right over, saw all this blood pooling in the abdomen and immediately uh, her and I became kind of co-partners in dealing with this case. It became clear this is one of those cases you can't leave the bedside till the problem is fixed. So, so everything else is put on hold while, while we are just going after this case. Um, we decide, hey, look, if her blood pressure, if all of her numbers kind of relatively stay stable, you know, we're talking like five minutes, if she doesn't code in the next five minutes, maybe we can sneak her off to CT angio of her abdomen and pelvis and figure out what is bleeding. So we gave her the two units. It looked okay. She goes straight off to CTA, comes right back. Uh, initially, the, it looked okay to all of us, to be honest. We didn't see any major signs of exsanguination or where this might be coming from. Although over the next 10 minutes, we got a call from radiology. There's probably a right-sided iliac pseudoaneurysm with some blush and bleeding. No clear fistula to anything, so they don't know how we're seeing it externally. But there is some bleeding from the right iliac. So at least now we have a source. Her right iliac artery is bleeding. And that's probably what's going on. Uh, and then, unfortunately, she turns, she looks to us, and she goes, oh, no. Oh, no, it's happening again. And again, it just starts pouring, pouring out of her. I mean, just flying out of her. Now, luckily, we already had lines and everything at this point. We had activated massive transfusion protocol earlier. We had a box ready, and we immediately start transfusing her. And it is, you know, we are getting the blood in through the Belmont infuser as fast as she is pouring it out. And, you know, unfortunately, we just kind of hit this steady state, this, this, uh, unstable stability where as long as we were giving her blood as fast as we could with our massive transfusion protocol and the Belmont, her blood pressure would stay, you know, 65 map kind of thing. And if we held on giving her blood for two minutes, you could just see the map on the art line drop, 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 drop. And then we'd start again. Okay. And then we're right back there, but we couldn't, we couldn't ever get her to a stable point, so to speak. Uh, at this point, we have me and the trauma surgeon. I had called our ICU physician to, to, to come down. So he was down there as well. Our urologist had showed up at this point. All of us are, are kind of doing an exam, trying to manage this case together. Even with our urologist, trauma surgeon, me doing the exam, it never really became 100% clear where she was bleeding from externally. Uh, we think it was probably coming from the bladder. There seemed, we put a Foley in a large bore Foley. I think 20 French, something of that size. There was blood coming out of the Foley. Um, but even with the Foley and with the area around the urethra, you know, surrounding the Foley kind of closed, there seemed to be some blood coming out the vagina as well. Anyway, it didn't really end up having a huge impact, but we couldn't figure out where this bleeding was coming from externally. It was just coming and coming and coming. At this point, she started vomiting, and it became clear that she wasn't really protecting her airway with this kind of shock. Uh, so I'd gone up and intubated her. And now we have this situation where we have an intubated patient uh, who's on massive transfusion, who's getting blood as fast as we can physically get blood and pour it into her through the Belmont and the cortis. That's the rate at which she needs blood to prevent her from coding. 
and there was no way that she could leave. She couldn't leave the the bed even for for thirty seconds without knowing that she's definitely going to code. And so the trauma surgeon and I had a discussion. What are we going to do? We can't we can't bring her anywhere. We can't take her to to IR. Oh, we had called IR and they said, yeah, they'd be happy to embolize as long as we could get her to IR. Uh, but we can't get her to IR. We can't get her to the operating room. We can't get her anywhere because she needs blood that quickly. And so what we decided is this might be a good case for Reboa. And so that's where we proceeded. So the right-sided vessels had already been taken up by our lines from earlier. So I went to the left side. I put in the uh, Reboa sheath introducer, uh, and then followed by the emergency Reboa catheter that we have. Uh, we had decided that given that we already had a CTA showing the right-sided iliac injury, that probably doing a zone three Reboa occlusion would be sufficient. We measured on her body externally. We saw that about 30 was, was going to be a good depth, which makes sense for a zone three. Uh, so we blew it up to zone three. We put in just a little bit of Omnipake, uh, a CC or two, shot a quick x-ray. The x-ray looked good, like it was in good position, uh, and then slowly blew up the balloon. And it was, it was remarkable, remarkable. The the rate at which the Reboa seemed to fix all of the problems that we had. As soon as we blew up the Reboa, I mean, we're going slowly, just, you know, a CC or two at a time, but, you know, relatively quickly with just a few CCs of, of Omnipake in there, it was, it was sudden. And then we had complete pallor in both legs. The legs just turned white. The arterial line tracing from the right groin went flat line, went to zero. She got immediate facial plethora. I mean, her head just turned purple uh, immediately. And the art line tracing on the Reboa catheter, uh, we, had, we had both art line tracings going at this point. The art line tracing on the Reboa catheter immediately bumped up to like the 140 systolic, immediately just shot up. And then most importantly, the bleeding stopped. Externally, we just immediately, the bleeding stopped. And so we turned off our massive transfusion and waited for a few minutes and everything just kind of stayed the same. Nothing, no, no more external bleeding. The pressure tracing on the Reboa catheter seemed to be holding steady. Everything looked to be in a relatively good position. Uh, and so at this point, we decided there was me, our trauma surgeon, our urologist, our intensivist, all at the bedside. We decided now's a good time to go to IR. IR had agreed to take the patient if we could get her there. Uh, we knew what the injury was, and so we went straight to IR from there. Uh, and luckily, with our with our trauma surgeon, urologist, and the ICU physician all in IR with the IR team, uh, they were able to localize the the pseudoaneurysm that had ruptured. They were able to put in a stent. They were able to completely stop the bleeding. They took down the Reboa catheter. The Reboa catheter was actually incredibly helpful for our our IR team because they could put it up and down as need be to confirm location, but then also stop the bleeding so they could do the procedure without any active bleeding. So they were able to confirm that the stent was in good position. They took down the balloon. They removed the Reboa catheter uh, as soon as the stent was in. And the patient did remarkably well. At no point after the stent was in did she require another unit of blood. Did she require pressors? Did she require any other kind of emergent crazy therapy? Uh, in the morning, they were able to turn down the sedation and extubate her without complication. I went and saw her the next day. Uh, she was already extubated. She was making jokes. She she had a little bit of soreness where we put the lines in, but was basically like laughing and 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 happy and thrilled. Uh, and over the next few days, it, it mainly became about her rehabilitation and, and improvement in strength and and getting her up. And then just a few days after that, she walked out of the hospital. I think in total in our emergency department. We'd given her 23 units of red cells for a total of about 50 units of blood, um, if you include plasma and, and platelets and such. But but even with 50 units of blood products, she she just got up and walked out of the hospital. She walked out of our hospital neuro-intact and feeling good. Uh, and it was a truly remarkable case. It was a team effort, and it was one that I'm I'm very happy to have been a part of and very happy that it had a good outcome. 
Yeah, dude, what a what an amazing case, right? It's um, you know this person would have died otherwise had it not been for the Rabo catheter. This uh, patient with essentially exsanguinating torso hemorrhage um, that needs to be controlled. It's uh, non-compressible, and so what other options do you have except for endovascular control in, in this instance? Um, and so certainly, you know, uh, even though we talk a lot about using Roboa in in trauma patients, the non-trauma exsanguinating patient. Um, you know, and there's several examples of this. Um, I remember when I was a fellow, one of the earliest cases that we had with Roboa was uh, when I was on the ICU and received an outside hospital transfer for a renal artery aneurysm uh, that needed to go to the operating room. And while they were waiting, the aneurysm ruptured. Um, and we put a robot in to try and uh, control that hemorrhage. And that's exactly kind of a similar principle, non-traumatic hemorrhage. Um, that's non-compressible. Um, and so uh, certainly this can be another tool in the box to be able to address those uh, types of patients as well. Yeah. In 2010 or so, it might've been a little earlier than that. I had a similar uh, ruptured aortic aneurysm case, but this was back before pry time. So I had put in the old check flow. I mean, it's not that old, but it was a 12 French sheath, right? And then we put a coda balloon up and were able to get proximal control of that person's hemorrhage. And then that person got taken to that patient got taken to the uh, operating room. I just want to share one more case that I had as well, where there was a guy who had had a history of testicular cancer and had lymph nodes all around his aorta that a surgeon had gone in and cleaned up. And this guy, uh, about four or five months later, had developed a fistula between his duodenum and his aorta. And we didn't know that. This is just a 40-year-old guy who comes in with hemorrhaging out of his rectum. And it was it was pulsatile hemorrhage out of his rectum, not really knowing what it was. And I didn't really appreciate the fact that this was probably a aortoenteric fistula. Um, but this guy is bleeding from something. So I put a zone one balloon up to get proximal control. And then we were able to get him off to CT angio and found his issue. And he also got an, an endo stent uh, across the aorta actually to, to occlude the, the connection to the, to the uh, duodenum. Okay. So what other cases would we consider putting an occluding balloon up in a patient who has non-trauma, non-compressible torso hemorrhage? Um, what do you think about gynecologic sources? Yeah, I think that's a really important um, uh, point. So from the acute setting, uh, Ruptured ectopic pregnancy comes to mind. So those are people young, otherwise healthy, who may have exsanguinating hemorrhage into their belly. And I'm sure uh, you and I and all your listeners have probably heard or, or maybe even seen one of their cases on their own where these people will die unless you get to the, get them to the operating room quickly. So that's certainly one uh, scenario in the emergency department. But uh, there's an increasing body of literature now that's been using Reboa for um, managing postpartum hemorrhage. And so the uh, obstetric world has really kind of been looking at this in more detail, and especially in, in women who have what's called placenta accreta or uh, morbidly adherent placentas. So these are placentas that are have dug deep into the uterine wall. And so trying to remove them can lead to catastrophic hemorrhage. So there's a number of, of um, cases now that have been published. There's even a, an international registry that's kind of collecting data on this now um, that uh, has looked at, uh, you know, I, a lot of times these patients have already been identified as high-risk pregnancies anyway because of it. So even using prophylactic um, placement of the catheter, um, and then very brief occlusions at the time that the surgeon needs to manage the placenta part of it, um, and actually leading to fantastic outcomes. And so essentially, you're saving two lives here, the mom and the baby. So it's a win-win um, all along. But certainly, you know, postpartum hemorrhage is a significant contributor worldwide mortality. Um, and so having this as a tool for that um, can certainly be uh, in the obstetrician's toolbox as well. So, uh, you know, uh, the OBGYN world um, really has opportunity here to uh, partner with um, maybe surgery or vascular surgery or their IR colleagues to be able to do this intervention in collaboration to lead to good outcomes. You know, we have to remember that this is a spectrum of disease, right? It's um, both for trauma and non-trauma. These um, 
these are patients who would never have survived beyond, sometimes not even from the field and certainly not beyond the emergency department. Um, and so now we're saving these people because we've stopped the bleeding. Um, and so the, the problem is now twofold though, because they're suffering this horrific kind of physiologic hit from the um, bleeding itself. They're in hemorrhagic shock and profound hemorrhagic shock. And uh, number two is, that they also have an occlusion catheter in, and especially if that's up in zone one, um, so occluding everything below the diaphragm, they're also taking a big ischemic hit um, uh, to multiple organ systems. And some are uh, much more likely to suffer early than other organ systems. And that has to be taken account in the operating room resuscitation, as well as the um, uh, initial kind of ICU uh, resuscitation phase that you have to kind of account for both of those physiologic hits um, uh, to ensure a good outcome. And we're learning more about that now. I think a lot of the focus early on was just trying to stop the bleeding and getting these people, um, you know, beyond the emergency department. Um, but then you go, oh, wow, what do I do now? Um, you know, it's not just uh, stopping the bleeding, it's actually managing these patients who would otherwise have really died and we, we haven't really been managing these patients before. So uh, you have to account for both of those aspects of it to be able to ensure a good outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to give you a rapid fire. You ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, getting the Roboa catheter in quickly and safely. So you've got a patient who shows up, they've got a AAA that's rupturing. You can see it on your ultrasound and they're holding their blood pressure at about 90. MAP is about 60 or so. Uh, and you're calling your surgeons. They're telling you they got a half hour time to get to the OR and then they drop their pressures and you don't, you have not yet done anything yet. So tell me what your, what is your move? What are you doing as the pressures are actively dropping? All right. So a tough case because, uh, well, one is the controversy of using a Roboa in a ruptured AAA patient or not because of the absence of fluoroscopy. So that's one thing, but people have done it. Um, so my instance would be to kind of um, continue some blood just to kind of keep them uh, nice and, uh, you know, stable hypotensive. I don't want to push their pressure too hard to rupture that balloon, but at the same time, I want to be getting some access. And so um, and by access, I mean getting the um, A-line in and probably a, a seven French sheath in uh, to that patient and uh, thinking of getting that uh, catheter in um, uh, if I can. Um, you know, the, the downside is that with the uh, uh, ER Roboa catheter in the, in the emergency department, I don't know where that catheter is going to end up because the aneurysm walls are so thin. So you might end up going through the aneurysm itself. Sure. But you could be lucky and get uh, up above the balloon. So I'd certainly at the very least get the, get the uh, um, catheter, uh, get the uh, A-line and the sheath in. What do you think about trying to get a wire up past the, the, um, the aneurysm and then using that as a guide? Yeah, yeah, so you can, um, uh, you, you know, you can even use, um, if the patient's thin enough, you could look at it on ultrasound. So you can guide it with that way. If you have uh, even just a portable x-ray, you can certainly look at it that way too. So it's possible. Um, uh, but you just have to be skilled at what you're doing, um, especially with those amplets wires, they can be pretty uh uh tough to um to guide sometimes. And so you have to be careful with it. Yeah. And if you have the luxury, just as an aside of TEE, you could always use that to guide totally. wire placement. And that, that would be an ideal scenario is because you, you, you can then see the, if this, if it were an Amplatz wire, yeah. you could certainly see that in the aorta. And that would let you know that at least you're past the rupturing aneurysm and probably safe to pass a catheter past that. Totally. Okay. Yeah. So rupturing, let's just say it's a rupturing AAA. And are you now going zone one or zone two? And can you briefly tell us what those are? Yeah. So, uh, Zone one is uh, traditionally the descending thoracic aorta. So it's um, the area just above the diaphragm. So the, the premise is that if you inflate the balloon there, you're occluding flow to everything below the diaphragm. And then uh, zone three actually is at the bifurcation. So um, just above the uh, aortic bifurcation. So you're occluding flow um, from the uh, iliacs onwards. And so um, the, uh, 
the uh, point that you're occluding really depends on where the bleeding source is or where you think the bleeding source is. You know, if you're not sure or if you're sure that it's in the in subdiaphragmatic region, then zone one's your goal. Um, but if they have like primarily pelvic bleeding or junctional groin junctional bleeding, then you can go down to zone three. Um, having said that, sometimes the patients are so sick that uh, a zone three occlusion might not be able to um, uh, robustly allow them to respond. And so sometimes you might have to start in zone one sure. uh, first and then move down to zone three. Sure. Okay. And then now you're going to inflate the balloon uh, mm -hmm. and you're in, tell me the difference between zone one and zone three in terms of inflation volumes and what are your sort of thought process for how much, how much volume do you put into that balloon? How do you know how you, I don't have a manometer. I don't have a way of telling how much pressure is in the balloon. So how do I do that? Yeah. Yeah. So it actually was a little bit easier with the old Coda balloons. The Pritime balloon doesn't quite give you the same feedback when you inflate the balloon, but essentially these balloons have um, what are what are called compliant balloons, which means they conform to the walls of the aorta. So, um, so you don't need a huge amount of volume to be able to completely occlude the aorta. Uh, the aorta is wider at the top than it is at the bottom, so you need a higher volume in zone one, and typically with the um, ER Reboa catheter, that's about eight mils. Um, and down at zone three, it's about two mils. Um, but if you meet resistance before that point, uh, then certainly stop. Uh, the advantage to the um, ER Reboa catheter is you can hook up uh, an arterial line uh, to it so you can see a change in your, in your pressure waveform when you occlude. Um, and similarly, if you um, hook up an A-line to the uh, sidearm of the introducer sheath, you can see loss of signal um, and once you've achieved occlusion as well. So there's a few different ways that you can, uh, you'll know that uh, you've occluded enough. Um, but even with the pride time balloon, you do feel a little bit of change of resistance as you start occluding the um, aorta. And just for a point of clarification, when you said that there's an A-line involved with the pritime catheter, that's an A-line mm -hmm. that's measuring above the balloon. Correct. Yeah, uh, so you're yeah. able to measure the intra-aortic pressures at the arch as opposed, and then also, as you said, you can use the side port to be able to get distal to that. So you're getting pressures uh, in front of and behind the balloon to tell whether or not you've got occlusion. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So you can measure pressures above and below the balloon. Okay. <clears throat> Omnipake. Um, are, you are you instilling saline? Or are you instilling Omnipake or both? Or what are you doing? Yeah, well, we are not. Uh, we're just using um, just uh, saline or sterile water. Um, but you can, you can mix like a third Omnipake and two thirds uh, sterile water uh, just to get more uh, clarity on the balloon. But you don't really need to. These devices have radiopaque uh, markers at either side of the balloon. So mm -hmm. it's uh, pretty easy to see them on uh, x-ray. So if you have it readily available, then fine, but uh, you don't necessarily need it. Okay, so you've got the balloon up, and now you've got blood pressure above the balloon that's adequate, mm -hmm. and the patient is actually doing pretty well, stabilizing from that perspective. So you've got an alive patient who's got a balloon up. Um, give me a couple of things that we need to worry about. One, as I understand it, once you get this balloon up, depending on the amount of volume that you put in, that, that balloon can sometimes migrate a bit. How do we prevent it from migrating right into our uh, aneurysm? Yeah, yeah, really important. So this is not the point where you just high five your buddy and say, okay, cool, let's go see the next patient. This is uh, now a critical time for your patient. So uh, very important, uh, zone one balloons can migrate very easily down to zone three if you're not careful because of the back pressure above the balloon. So um, keep a hand on the catheter, remember how far in you've put the catheter and then uh, secure it. Uh, and there's a number of different ways you can secure it either with suture or a bunch of um, uh, tape or things like that. So there's various ways that you can secure it, but get that secured early or have someone uh, keep a hand on the catheter so it doesn't migrate. Um, and then uh, the next thing is time. So time is really critical here. So, you know, somebody needs to document when the balloon's gone up and then really the clock is ticking. Um, and certainly for zone one, uh, the tolerance for occlusion um, physiologically is a lot shorter than for zone three occlusion. Um, and we don't have a clear number yet for uh, humans, but uh, the animal studies certainly talk about between 45 to 60 minutes total for um, zone one occlusion and zone three is probably a lot more tolerant. Um, but if you keep one number in mind that you have to get this person to definitive care um, within the hour and ideally even less, then, you know, that's it's one less thing to remember. And importantly, it tells you that you need to move fast after, um, after this has happened. So 
keep those things in mind as you're kind of, um, uh, after you've got the balloon up. Uh, and then obviously we're taking these patients off to definitive care, either to the operating room or to the uh, IR suite or the hybrid OR or whatever it is that you are using. And then um, about deflation of the balloon, How is there? Uh, I don't want to get too much into uh, removal, uh, but uh, do you have any thoughts on the, are we, as soon as that, um, as soon as they get proximal control in the OR, are we dropping the balloon immediately? Are we doing it slowly? Are we worried about reperfusion of the lower extremities? Any thoughts on that? Totally. Yeah. So deflation um, is like a critical time for the patient. You know, you could kill the patient by deflating this too quickly, especially the longer um, occlusions at zone one. Um, and the way to kind of think about it is uh, if you've ever seen those uh, news footage or, or uh, movies about people who get crushed by buildings and, uh, you know, their legs are crushed and but they're talking to the person and stuff and suddenly they yeah, release the person from the building and the person dies. So they're like smiling and then they die. Um, and the reason is exactly the same as what happens with like a zone one occlusion is that in all that time that you've been um, uh, trying to get definitive hemorrhage control, uh, in the meanwhile, all these toxic metabolites are kind of building up um, above the balloon. And if you release that really quickly or you haven't prepared the patient for um, uh, uh, deflating the balloon, all that washes out into the rest of the system and uh, can lead to um, uh, cardiac arrest. And a lot of this is related around um, abnormal potassium levels we're finding. And so kind of preempting um, uh, deflation by uh, ensuring that uh, you know, your potassium is managed, they're giving calcium, maybe even insulin dextrose, things like that. Um, making sure that their blood volume is restored uh, before deflation. Um, and also close communication between the surgeon and the, usually the anesthesiologist at that point, um, that this is the time to kind of uh, start, start uh, getting the balloon down. And when they do it, you know, rather than take this down, just completely take out those eight cc's that you put in, take out like 0.5 cc at a time and see how the patient's responding. You know, it, and there's a couple of things that could happen. You know, maybe the surgeon was confident that they'd gotten the bleeding point, but actually there's another bleeder that shows up now because the pressure's higher. Uh, and so they can put the balloon back up and occlude. Or maybe the blood pressure starts tanking because of all those, uh, that um, reperfusion stuff that's going on. And so they can reinflate the balloon and the anesthesiologist can address whatever's the issue there. Maybe they need some more volume or maybe they need some more optimization before releasing that. Um, and if you think about it, you know, when the, um, when these patients used to go up with an aortic cross clamp through a, a resuscitative thoracotomy, they'd never just take off the clamp. They'd always kind of cinch it open one notch at a time to see what was going on. And it's exactly the same principle with um, deflating the balloon. Just take it nice and slow, see how your patient responds. You can always inflate it. But if you deflate it real quick and the patient dies, then all that hard work that you've done is for nothing. Absolutely. Well, Zaf, we've just covered basically aortic occlusion for subdiaphragmatic non-compressible hemorrhage using surgical options for trauma, external compression options with the so-called knee rubella, endovascular options, and then we've talked about several cases where we can use this in uh, non-trauma scenarios of people who have hemorrhage below, usually below the diaphragm uh, that is non-compressible. Now that's a good, uh, good kind of discussion of where we're at now. I think, uh, you know, it's it's really cool. We keep kind of coming back to this topic, and we're still learning new stuff about it. So I'm sure, you know, down the line we'll have even newer thoughts on this as well. But just remember, this is kind of your bridge and your exsanguinating patient, another tool in the box. Um, and so certainly think about how you can implement that within your system. Uh, to perhaps change outcomes in that small subset of people who might benefit from it. Yeah, exactly. If you want to learn more about how to place Reboa, how to manage Reboa, and then a uh, little side benefit is learning everything you ever wanted to know about ECMO, uh, check out reanimateconference.com. Uh, we will have Reanimate 8. It's going to happen. We just don't know exactly when yet, and we will announce that over all of our media and social media platforms when that comes. Zaf, thanks so much, buddy. So good to see you. Dude, anytime. Dude, I'm looking, really looking forward to when we can all meet in San Diego again and uh, go through the course and hang out. So uh, really looking forward to that.
I have to tell you a funny story that I thought of as you were talking about people who had compressed injuries and they lifted the, you know, you lift the rock off the uh-huh. guy at the, so um, this is, uh, oh God, this is probably eight years ago. And I am working back in a area of the ER. Do you have five minutes to hear this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm working in, I'm working in an area in the ED and I just finished my shift. It was 11 o'clock at night and I'm just kind of dictating and whatever. There's nobody there. And I get a frantic call from the radio nurse and she says, Hey, uh, I can't find Dr. Ho. And you know, Chris Ho from Randy. Mm-hmm. I can't find Dr. Ho. I've got a problem. Uh, can you come to the radio room like right now? And so I run up to the radio room and mm-hmm. she is a, seasoned nurse who's like kind of sweating a little bit. She looks nervous and she says, Hey, I've got a guy out at a rock quarry uh, out in East County, East County, San Diego, and a boulder's fallen on him. And every time they lift the boulder, he drops his pressures and he, he's like Perry arrest and Mm -hmm. they can't get this boulder off of him. And they want somebody to go out and do a, a, a field amputation. And I'm like, a what? like, (laughs) Well, this guy's going to die and we don't have anybody else who can do it. There are catchment area. It's a trauma patient technically. So they're talking about sending somebody out to the field to do a field amputation. And I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not a surgeon. I can't do that. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I've never done one before. I have no idea. So I just thought, you know what? Hang on a second. I just saw Dr. Frank Kennedy, who's our trauma director at the time. He was in the trauma mm-hmm. room. So I walked over and I go in and I go, Hey Frank, weird thing, man. Like, they've got this patient crush injury, you know, they lift the boulder, his pressures drop. They want to do a field amputation. And Frank says, yeah, uh, I did one of those back in my USC days. Um, Yeah. You got it. So what you got to do is you got to go up to the operating room and you got to get something called a jiggly saw. And it's one of these saws. It's like a tree saw on a chain Mm -hmm. that you like, you rock back and forth. (laughs) And he's showing me this with his hands. Mm -hmm. And I'm like on horror. I'm looking at this like, what? (laughs) And he goes, yeah. So you got to get a, you got to get a surgical tourniquet. And you got to get a jiggly saw and this guy's going to die. Otherwise, I mean, you know, go out and make sure you know, mm-hmm. there's not some other option here, but that's what you've got to do. And so I thought, well, you go. And he's like, well, <laughs> I'm the only trauma doctor here. I can't leave, but I will take care of him. When you bring him back, just go out, take his leg off. If that's what he really needs and bring him back to me. And I thought, well, what about medical malpractice? He goes, Oh no, it all falls under the, uh, what was that? The, uh, it all falls under the good Samaritan law. You're fine. I medical <laughs> medical. It's not even a thing. Cause you're doing what's in the best, uh, best for the patient. I thought something's fishy. So I walked back out and I walked back over to the radio room and I walked back in and Merrick who's the, um, the nurse is still sitting there like, Oh, and I'm like, get the medics on the phone. I got to get them on the radio. I got to talk to these guys. And she's like, Oh, the, the, the guy just lost his pulses. They're thinking about starting CPR. I don't want to bother him. And I'm like, Oh, uh, I, I don't know what to do. She's like, well, I, I heard you've got to go get a jiggly saw from the OR. And I'm like, oh, get, get the medics on the phone or on the radio. And she's like, oh, I, she, so she pushes the button and I can hear it beep. And she goes, medic 49, can you please come on? Then we got Dr. Belezo in the room. We'd like to get an update on this patient. And then uh, I, I walk outside for a second when they didn't respond and I walk back in and there's another doc, another ER doc, who's a, you know, another colleague of ours who comes running up and goes, Hey, I hear you need somebody to do a field amputation. And I'm like, you're not doing it. I'm doing it. (laughs) And it turns out that, and then I'm, I'm, I'm looking over the nurse's shoulder and I'm looking at, and I can see the big computer screen here. And there's a reflection in the screen and Mm -hmm. the reflection is Chris Ho jumping up and down. (laughs) The whole thing, every bit of that was all made up. Even Frank Kennedy, he knew I'd go ask him. So he had Frank prepped, he had the nurse prepped, and then he ran he, he ran Matt Healy up to, to me because he knew that it would uh-huh. get to my like competitive side. Like, well, if I can if I can just run another doc up saying, hey, I will take care of this, I'm like, oh hell no, I'm on this one. So Chris and I have been that's playing awesome. jokes on practical jokes on each other forever. And by far that's the that's the oh, best. Oh, that's one. cool. <laughs>